Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, the host. With me from The Square Ball is Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic is Mr. Phil Hay. Hello. 33% off is the offer you can get if you subscribe to The Athletic through us, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Phil, give me a reason to subscribe this week. Go. This week, really enjoyed doing a piece with a guy called Dave Hancock, who used to be physio at Leeds and then went on to Chelsea for a quarter of a million pounds, no less, which reminds you of how much Abramovich likes to spend. But these days is a personal physio to people like Kevin Durant and Madonna and you too and Paul McCartney and others. Pretty fascinating read that one and, and very, very interesting guy. We've got a really long piece on Melier with our goalkeeping expert Matt Pedrowski, which is long, definitely. Um but actually Like Melier. Yes, uh, as long as his wingspan. But pretty fascinating that as well. Like to find what what I like about those pieces is finding out from a goalkeeper's perspective the technical aspect of how you position yourself for shots, how you should move, what you do with your footwork and everything else. It's there's some really good technical info in there. And if you look online now as well, you will find an exclusive interview with Charlie Criswell. I read the Melier piece this morning and I made the mistake of getting as far as the comments. Oh, yes. And there was someone in there saying we'll get relegated if we stick with Melier and he would feel much better if we had Kiko Kassir in there. And he appeared to be completely serious. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Moving on. <laughs> well, to read that and the more sane opinions, have a look at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 33% off at the minute. International week then it is, Philip. Um, we've heard from Andrea Ratrazzani this morning, he did a little piece, about 10 minutes or thereabouts, on a, one of the business shows on Sky News. Not a great deal in there that we didn't know before. He was talking about his involvement with Acer and Eleven Group, a little bit about the, the 49ers, describing the relationship with the 49ers, not only a strategic partnership, but also a friendship. So that sounds good. They do get on very well, and, and they have done from the start. And there was a personal friendship between Radrazani and Paragmarati going back to the time before the 49ers um, first bought in. It's something to keep an eye on, really, is, is where the boardroom is going to go next and, and how the equity split is going to change. I think we will see investment again this season or, or certainly next summer, which again would, would change the, the division um, of equity between the 49ers and, and Radrazani. At the moment, Radrazani has 63%, 49ers have 37%. But there's never been any doubt that the 49ers like the idea of full ownership here. And there's never been any doubt either that, that Radrazani wouldn't be here Forever. Also in the background, you have Peter Lowy, Australian businessman who became a director in June, who is a Leeds fan going back to his younger years, is is already quite heavily involved in the stadium side of things. And again, somebody who I think deep down can see himself getting more and more involved going further forward. So even though it's not a it's not a setup where in the case of Newcastle now you have hideous amounts of billions tucked away that, that could potentially be used. But I do feel from an ownership perspective in the Premier League, it's a pretty strong and promising setup. We'll talk more about Newcastle and, and what's happened there and the implications in, in the second part of the show. Uh, Radrazani did touch on it, Newcastle and Man City, mentioning the unlimited pots of sovereign wealth they've got behind them. And uh, 
he believes the the Premier League should implement slightly more stringent fair play rules. Do you agree with that? I would say the horse is comprehensively bolted already. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll dig into this properly in in part two. There is a, a massive problem in the Premier League with competition and and the competitive levels. The, the big split between the clubs who do seem to have limitless wealth and the clubs who who don't. But it has to be said that nobody has really been trying to do anything about that any time recently. Uh, and you can go all the way back to Abramovich to the time where money really, really changed the game in, in such a big way. I mean, similar to the, the introduction of the Premier League and the, the rise in, in Sky Sports cash, which made it so much more of a business and, and left so much more money floating around in it. But over the past 15 years, the game has definitely crossed the boundary into the, the billionaire's playground. And I think that the thing that, that the Saudi takeover at Newcastle tells you is that there is no going back from this. And one of the other things that Radrazani touched on was year three being the one where you can relax a little bit more when it comes to the Premier League. So stay up this season with a view to being in a more consolidated position, I think he described it as, on Sky News. What changes in year three then if, if Leeds stay up this time? And I'm glad to see as well Radrazani wasn't heavily pushing the line of being in Europe anytime soon. I think it's a case of let's get this one sorted first. We'll look at the position in October is what he said actually. Uh, but year three, what does that bring versus, let's say, year one and two? Well, yeah, on, on Europe, I think if this season tells you anything and or the start to the season, it's that you better to run before, uh, better to walk than before you try to run in the Premier League. The difference it makes is that you've had two years of income behind you. You have consolidated financially. You've had a chance to catch up commercially and to change things on that front to, to maximise your revenue or at least to, to significantly improve your revenue. You would like to think as well that over the, the course of two years, You've recruited um, in the transfer market in a way that makes your squad considerably better. I still feel at the end of the season that there will need to be investment on the playing front. And I think whenever you get into conversations about Europe, and it is the Europa League that Leeds are looking at rather than the Champions League. Champions League feels like a, a big jump away, but that is going to require money. I don't think you can look at this squad and say that when the, the wind's blowing in a fair direction, this is a squad who you could expect to qualify for Europe. They could go close as they, they did last season, but that is going to require require more money. But I definitely get that that sense when you speak to anybody at Leeds that staying up this season is every bit as important as it was last season. And, and almost like it's a kind of two-year project that, that when you're two years in, you feel like you're consolidated. And, and perhaps to an extent as well, players looking in from the transfer market feel like you're consolidated as well. So you become a bit more of an appealing prospect. Is it year three when we get a central midfielder? Is that Did he mention anything well, about that? Well, let's not um, let's not dwell on this one. But um, year three, I think, has to be when they get a central midfielder. Yes, <laughs> third time lucky. Eh? Third, time, <laughs> third time lucky. So we are coming off the back of the international break. We obviously need to get the wins under our belt to stay in for year three. Uh, we'll come on to Southampton towards the back end of the podcast. But um, are you like us in that you appreciate the international break a little bit now? In that it's just a bit of downtime. I mean, what do you do with it? Because Michael, we said over on our podcast, Michael was doing karaoke in, in Pontefract. <laughs> Uh, some total horror show. I've been painting a fence. What have you been doing? It's fairly, presumably you've been revelling in Scotland's magnificent win, 1-0 win over the Faroe Islands. Well, we will be talking about Lyndon Dyke's 86th minute winner for the next 30 years. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I was teaching a six-year-old to ride a bike last weekend. That was uh, Those were my fun and games. Um, but it is nice to get a bit of time, we get a weekend with the family. I feel it much less in the Premier League than it did in the Championship because the Championship felt totally relentless especially because you go into the cup competitions or the League Cup a little bit earlier and you have an awful lot more midweek games compared to to the Premier League. I actually feel this time round, 
that it doesn't feel as if Leeds have played much to have already been through two international breaks and with another one coming another one coming next month. The fixture list is a mess, I think. FIFA do need to get a grip of it. and You, know, you, should... you say heading into 2022 when we've got a Christmas World Cup. But that's exactly <laughs> it, isn't it? And and it's it's probably only going to get going to get worse. So no, it, it's nice to nice to have time, but I don't feel that there's an onslaught of football in this division in the way that there was in, in the EFL. The EFL never, ever stopped. I've realised since we've come up, it, it felt completely suffocating, didn't it? Like you never had a chance to catch your breath. Like now, for example, like after the West Ham game, I sulked for a couple of days. But then by the time we come around to Thursday when we record this, I feel all right again and I can look forward to the following weekend's football. Whereas in the EFL, it was if you are disappointed by your weekend game, and thankfully we won more than we lost in the EFL, but that's against the backdrop of completely suffocating pressure to get out of that division. Then you're playing again on Tuesday and before you know it, you're on telly again by the, the Friday. So sometimes you'd have like three games in six days and you're a complete gibbering wreck. Every now and again, I'll be sat on the sofa on a Tuesday night watching the telly and I'll flick on Sky Sports app or BBC website or whatever else. Or the athletic site, of course. Um, and and I'll, I'll see that Middlesbrough are away at Swansea and I'll think, that used to be us. Yeah, Because uh, you used to get some horrendous midweek games and I, I don't know if it's still like this, but going back four or five years, there was a private agreement by the clubs in the championship that they would rather have the horrendous long trips midweek because they wanted to maximise the crowds at the weekend. So it was better for Leeds to have Huddersfield on a Saturday and better for Huddersfield to have Leeds on a Saturday than it was for either of them to be heading to Cardiff or Bournemouth or whatever else. But what it meant was that you constantly arriving home at like three in the morning, four in the morning. And, and you know, we were lucky enough to get paid for it. But a lot of people who were paying a lot of money to do that, it was... It was a, a bit of a bind, not to mention the fact that you felt like you'd played the teams who were in the championship a thousand times. So what have you been doing over the weekend then? Did you manage to catch like Rafinha's performances from Brazil late at night or was it all binge watching Squid Game on Netflix? I caught the first one, which I was really pleased about. I didn't catch the second one, so I didn't get to see him um, mugging Johan Mahika in the flesh. Uh, although straight away into that team, you saw exactly what we've seen at Leeds. It's the same, same intensity, it's the same running, it's the same trickery. They seem very impressed with him over in, in Brazil. And I think what he's done, unlike Bamford with England, who I didn't feel really got much of a chance to do the same um, when, when Southgate called him up, Rafinha has pretty much nailed himself down as guaranteed to be in the next squad. And I think if he carries on playing like this, this will be the start of a Brazil career, which will run to a lot of appearances. That There are a hell of a lot of people now who know more about him um, in comparison to two weeks ago. Not that he had a low profile anyway. <laughs> Uh, but you did watch Squid Game then because we were talking about it in the office before this. I don't know why I tweeted about this really, but I was saying earlier, it's the first series I've watched in ages which has been worth the hype. And what I always find, find funny about this is that as soon as you say something like that, you get a massive split between people who will say to you, I thought it was complete drivel. And people who say, yeah, yeah, I, I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I think, are we going to have a slight debate about who <laughs> at Leeds would win this? If we submitted the entire squad to Squid Game. Well, let's let's just it. say we won't do any spoilers, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to see it. And Michael, you haven't seen it, have you? No, I've not seen it. I think I'm in the camp of the more I hear people talk about it, the more I'm sort of digging in and not yeah. watching My it. My wife but, is exactly the same. But I will at some point. I said to her this morning in the kitchen, are you going to watch Squid Game just so we can talk about it? And she said, no, because everyone's watching it. Because she hates speaking to you. <laughs> yeah, there is that as well. Well, just ruin it for her. And then if she gets sucked in, it'll, you know, it'll all be done. I mean, far <laughs> be it for me to suggest that we should ruin Michael's day either. Um, but no. I'll go first and I will try to do this. Just to set the scene, it's, it's essentially like a, a big deathmatch type battle yes. royale scenario. In Korea. Yes. Which is not, I, don't, I think, what the Koreans generally do, but um, just um, suspend disbelief for a bit. 
The obvious answer to this, I think, and the guaranteed winner at Leeds... Ferrari? ...is Stuart Dallas. All right. Definitely Stuart Dallas. So, game one... Are, you gonna, are we going to tell what the games are? Because no, 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 because people will get upset. You know, right, okay. you know what it's like. So, game one, you need poise and you need discipline and you need a little bit of pace, which Dallas has definitely got. Berardi would treat it like the 100 metres. <laughs> so, bang, gone. Game two, Dallas used to be a carpenter back when he played in, in Northern Ireland. A bit like Jesus or Joseph or whoever. So he'd be he'd be dexterous. All the carpenters. He'd be all the carpenters. Yeah, absolutely. They'd be dexterous as well. So he'd be dexterous. He'd be he'd be good with his hands. Imagine Alioski doing that. Well, that was my <laughs> first thought. Yeah, the, I, the line I was going to say is imagine like so again. It's not spoiling anything, but waking up in there with four hundred and fifty odd other people, and you turn around and Gianni Alioski's next to you in the next bunk. Imagine Alioski getting the umbrella though. Imagine that. Mm. Mm, go it go horribly wrong. Game three, he could position himself anywhere. Dallas, which would be a good move. Um, yep. You'd need strength. You'd need, um, you'd need to be a bit tactical as well. So, you know, I think I think for him, that would be good. Game four, he's got the luck of the Irish. So he's he's absolutely laughing. I feel that's not as tangible necessarily as the other skills, but... And no. I don't, luck of the Irish doesn't have a um, brackets northern in front of it either. I don't know. I feel like, the, are the northern Irish included in luck of the Irish? Let's not well, get into well, that. Well, they, they, they are from my point of view. And they better be if I've got me got my mortgage on him winning this. But I think that I think that season through game five is that's the that's that one. Yeah, yeah, the yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, that one. So going back to his carpentry skills, you know, making the sort of tenuous link that he might know a bit about home refurbishment. You, you, you know, <laughs> feels like a bit of a stretch. This Phil. You know how the you know how the guy gets them pretty close to. You know what he does to yep. get them pretty well. You see, I think of all the people in the squad. You could probably rely most on Dallas to have a little bit of knowledge about that, you know, about, okay. about the composition of said instruments. And then game six is basically down to stamina and the ability to take the pain, which he's good at, and a bit of brutality as well. I mean, I'm not saying that Dallas is predisposed to murder, but I think <laughs> I think if my mortgage was on him, for the sake of my mortgage, I'd have faith in him that he could commit murder. For the sake of my mortgage, I think he could, I think he could do it. Think, I'm glad you've I got think, a record saying that. I think so. I think he could. Yeah. If, if, um, we look you forward know, to a letter if, from Mr. Dallas if, solicitors. If, if needs be, I certainly hope so. I'd be, I'd be disappointed if you know if, if my money was was hanging on it. So beat that. Right. We we must never do any more international breaks because this is the chat that results off the back of it. <laughs> Did you watch any more of the international football then? Because I kind of disengaged with England when um, when Phillips was out. I, saw, I mean, I watched it. I will I, say, but I've seen plenty of the highlights, um, including. Clique with Poland, there was a, a big blow up um, against Albania, and you knew something had happened because his his mum Gozio was posting the um, that shh gif uh, from Ellen Road on Twitter. But yeah, the their win over Albania was suspended for a little while because they scored and they were pelted with missiles, and it was it was all it was all not great. Cooper didn't play much for Scotland; he was on twice as a sub. They kind of got out of jail in both games, really, and somehow seemed to be seemed to be hanging in in the way that that Scotland kind of do. Not looking, Dallas played for Northern Ireland as well. Not looking great for them. They they lost both games, and you had James and Roberts away with um, with Wales, who again are, are keeping the results ticking over. And Melier, I was reading Moscow's piece last night about Melier. Sounded like he went through under twenty ones duty with France on the pitch without really doing anything by the sounds of things, which is no bad thing. Uh, Scotland are now in line, aren't they, for a, basically a playoff for the World Cup? If if they make it, I mean, what are the implications there of a Scotsman in the desert? I don't know. Maybe they'll send me. That'd be good, mind you. Maybe I should boycott it out of uh, out of principle. You almost certainly know that Scotland will get beaten the playoffs. So I wouldn't worry. <laughs> and did you see it goal go a bit Green Street at, at Wembley as well? That was um, 
interesting seeing the hungry fans pile into the police. I enjoy the police claiming that it was a, a tactical retreat that they, that they made, not that they were getting absolutely the shit kicked out of them by, uh, by a load of angry Hungarians in black shirts. But we 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 were going to leave anyway, so we did. Um, it just looked a little bit, a little bit awkward, didn't it? I mean, I watched the England game in the same way as I used to watch England games, which yeah. was on a telly at the side while I do other stuff. Now Calvin's not there. Yeah, it's not that interesting, is I it? I think Declan Rice missed him in midfield as well. Yeah, it, it wasn't great. Um, it was a bit of a tactical retreat in the sense that everybody seemed to realise at the same time, let's get out of here and back down into the into the stairwell. So yeah, it was it was a mess that. And about 20 yards away, you've got Jack Grealish who will tumble at the first sign of contact. I wonder how he would have, would have handled being in among that. <laughs> you know, watching the bits that I've seen of that again on, on um, midweek, the, the Hungary game, it just forever feels to me like you've got a really, really good crop of England players there who are still quite a distance away from playing as well as that group could play if, if you got it absolutely right. It feels like Southgate's got a bigger and bigger decision to make about Harry Kane at some point, unless he, he comes back into form. And it just didn't didn't really work. And I don't know, I, is anybody... I, I can't tell how much people are enjoying watching England. It's difficult for me to have an opinion on that because they're, they're not my country. But even though they've been to the semi-finals of the World Cup and they've been to the finals of the Euros, I'm not sure people are loving the football. But it's, 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 untapped, it's about untapped potential, isn't it? It goes back to that classic England thing of, of underachievement in the eyes of fans. Like, you've got some really, really good players there. I mean, you can argue about whether they're truly world-class or not, but... It does feel like that team is often less than the sum of its parts, whereas you know you contrast it with what we've seen over the last few years at Ellen Road, and we're seeing a team absolutely playing beyond the sum of its parts. And I think that's what's frustrating from a from a football perspective. You know, you've got Jack Grealish on there on the left, who is undeniably a talented player, but it doesn't feel like they know how to use him yet or how to get the best out of him. Taking him off after an hour seemed to not make him particularly happy. I feel like with England, a lot of it as well, the, the qualifications and any friendlies and Nations League. It- it all feels like a bit of a grind. You just you're essentially just waiting for a tournament, aren't you? Which I know as a as a Scotsman, you don't necessarily always have that that luxury of of just thinking, well, this isn't it. Whereas with England, we we have taken for granted qualification now because we we seem to do it fairly easily in recent years. So it's it's almost like well, like that game the other day, we should have won it, but we drew, and actually it doesn't matter because yeah. now we need we need four points against. Is it Albania and San Marino? I think yeah, we, yeah, we need yeah. four points yeah. from, and even if we don't get a point against Albania, I think we still need Poland to win. Yeah, Both yeah. of their games by a margin, and its qualification is done essentially. So it was irrelevant anyway. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Like the expansion of Europe, like in terms of the number of different countries that can then come into the competition, does dilute it down, doesn't it? There also seems to be a lot of experimentation with Southgate, which I, I kind of don't really understand. I, I do get the fact that you have to switch players around, especially if you've got a lot of games shoehorned into a short period of time. But he's been coached for a long, long time now, and some of the experimentation, I sit there thinking. You should really know what your team is by now. You know, it, it should really be settled and it should be quite solid in your mind about what it is that, that or, you're or, doing. or maybe even the formation. If it's not the team, settle on your formation. Yeah. Uh, but it feels like he's always just, I'll just try this, see if that works. And like you tried the 4-3-3 against Hungary and it didn't work particularly well because you seem to lose something in, mid, in midfield. And then you've got Harry Kane doing whatever it is that he does up front, which doesn't feel like a, a right lot at the minute, does it? I might be wrong here and, and it's so long ago that I can't really remember, but... If you think about Germany and the build-up to them winning the World Cup in 2014, because obviously Lowe was in charge for a, a long, long time as well, and, and a little bit like Southgate, somebody who hadn't sort of club football record wasn't really there before he, he came in. It wasn't as if you were talking about a Guardiola going into uh, to manage the, the German national team. 
it didn't feel as if there was like a wild amount of chopping and changing with that side or, or a huge amount of experimentation. It just felt as if bit by bit, Lowe got them together, worked out what the formula was and, and how it would work. And that was them. And that was why they became so good. And his best players, Sean, and the, the system suited them. Because I, I still think that this England squad should have a serious chance in Qatar. But I'm not sure I can see it. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We spoke at length on the Square Ball podcast, um, Michael and I, about our feelings on uh, the Newcastle takeover. So we probably don't need to retread that ground. But I'm interested to get your point of view on this from from a journalistic standpoint. There's a lot being written on The Athletic in the wake of this about the implications, the moral angle, the fan reaction. Where do you start with it? Well, good point. I said earlier, you know, there's there's no going back from this, and and I don't. I don't think there is. You, you start to realise now that every major takeover that takes place in the, the Premier League or any takeover that involves a, a very, very significant amount of money is probably going to lean more and more to buyers who have either unsavoury aspects to them or, or unpopular things about them or, or look like the sort of people who shouldn't necessarily be in the division. It is very much a, a matter of opinion, but I know that there are other writers at The Athletic alongside me who are very critical of this and, and don't think it's it's a good thing. One of the places to start, I think, is to say that if if you look at Manchester United as an example, at full whack, they think that they should be worth, on the base of the stock market, £4 billion plus. If a club is worth £4 billion, who can feasibly buy that apart from a tiny, tiny number of very, very wealthy individuals, most of whom probably have no interest in owning a football club anyway, or a state with the wealth to to do it by clicking their fingers. I mean, it seemed to me that with the public investment fund, PIF from Saudi Arabia, it was absolutely no problem at all for them to buy Newcastle, even though Newcastle were costing £300 million plus. And whereas you see with a lot of takeovers, they take time to go through because there's a lot of arguing back and forward about the cost and can you get the money together? And, you know, you've seen other attempts at Newcastle come to nothing and we saw them at Leeds come to nothing. And sometimes it was because the people trying to buy just did not have, have the cash. In this instance, it was very easy to do because in the same way as it happened at Manchester City, in the same way at Chelsea, when Abramovich basically walked in and said to Bates, I want this club, here's the money. It's very, very easy to do. So the Premier League and English football, and not just English football, I mean European football at the top level as well, has managed to put itself in a position now where through the advance of commercial interests and commercial appetite, just this obsession with making more and more money from the game. Clubs are almost too expensive to buy. In order to sell a major club now, you are needing somebody who has the sort of wealth that, that a state would have. There are clearly massive issues with Saudi Arabia's human rights record, and, and there's no doubt about that at all. And you know the people at The Athletic who've written about this have, have said pretty clearly that in their view, the reason the Premier League have approved this 
is essentially down to the fact that the, the big dispute that was going on between Saudi Arabia and Qatar over television rights, Saudi Arabia had blocked being sports, which is the Qatari broadcaster, which had Premier League rights from broadcasting in Saudi Arabia. There was a lot of piracy and allegations of piracy in, in Saudi Arabia. That has been resolved. That was resolved last week. And it cannot be a coincidence, I don't think, or it's un unlikely to be a coincidence, that that gets resolved and suddenly a takeover, which has been in front of a brick wall for months, stroke years, suddenly goes through. And it does make you think that the opposition to this w was never anything about human rights or you know whether this whether it's appropriate that an investment fund with very very strong links to government people in Saudi Arabia and the crown prince whether that was ethical or whether that was appropriate it basically seemed that as soon as the commercial interests of tv rights were protected and everybody was happy bingo you're on and, and the green light was given i think that's why i mean i said this over on our show i'm just kind of ambivalent towards the whole thing it's not anything I, I can relate to. It doesn't make me feel anything. I don't feel angry. I don't feel jealous. It's just a thing that's happened involving a lot of money. It's just a world I don't understand. It doesn't appeal to me in any way, shape or form. And as we've got back into the Premier League, I found I'm having to shut out a lot of the external noise. I think that's that's one of the things about this and um, just concentrate on the on the welfare of Leeds and hope that we remain competitive and try and enjoy that for what it is because this is just a thing that's happened. And I, I never thought I'd feel ambivalent towards football. I, you know, growing up, you'd get angry at the clubs that you hated and you'd feel passionately about things. And this, I'm just kind of like, well, what can I feel about this? I think, as it happens, Leeds as a club are quite indifferent to it as well. Radrazani's quotes from this morning were, were talking about, you know, needing fair play across the league. But, of course, that can lead to, you know, suggestions of, of hypocrisy. If you go back to the Championship, you had that situation with Derby and Leeds were opposing the, the EFL's TV deal very much because they felt that, rightly, that they, or clubs who were drawing in the big figures for Sky Sports in the Championship and, and didn't feel the split of money was fair. But then you get up into the Premier League and suddenly there are the bigger clubs than you and wealthier clubs than you and, and it becomes harder to compete. So your mind, mindset shifts. I think Leeds feel that this is this is not their fight. And although there the were the stories last week about you know the 19 Premier League clubs being very unhappy about this and wanting emergency meetings and so on, I don't expect Leeds to be active in, in trying to pose this. And in any case, the Premier League are not going to backtrack on it. This this will will go ahead. You have to say as well that it's not so long, and this won't happen though, but it, it's not so long since Radrazani was talking about the possibility of QSI coming in, Qatari Sports Investments. You could not pretend that QSI don't have links to the Qatari state. You could not pretend that, that Qatar's human rights record is, is squeaky clean either. So you have to be careful in, in picking up this argument. I think what you want to see, if, if this is going to happen and it has happened and, and the Premier League are going to let it happen, you want to see everybody being reasonable and, and being very pleased about the fact, if you're a Newcastle fan, that suddenly Newcastle have money and can be more competitive. And are out of that era, where the, the Ashley era, which was soul-destroying. I mean, I said to you when I went up to St James's Park, I was sat on a wall outside and two Newcastle fans walked past me and one of them said to the other, I don't know why we're fucking bothering tonight. And that, that's what he said. And that's how, how it had gone up there. So I understand why... They wanted a bit of sunshine and light at the end of the tunnel, really. But I think you want to see that tempered with an acceptance of the fact that there are big, big problems with Saudi Arabia from a human rights point of view. And, and that, as I always say, I feel like your first stance with any owner should be to be suspicious of them and to, to scrutinise them and to see see what they do in practice, but also to properly understand what it is that, that they're about. And I think a lot of the questions that are being asked about the Saudi takeover are fair. Is it fair to be suspicious of Leeds' current ownership? In a friendly way. I mean, you know, you don't have to be 
you know, ranting and raving and going crazy on a blog to hold natural levels of suspicion. Is that the healthiest position to be in, you think? You should be fair. And I often feel with Radrasani that for all his faults and so on, th- there are times where I think people aren't fair in, in, in always appreciating the fact that he was the owner who got them out of, of that mess and they'd gone through 14, 15 years of looking like nobody was going to do it at, at any stage. If anything, there were times when it seemed like it would get worse than just being in, in the championship. But at the same time, not everything's perfect. And and if we are talking about Europe, there's going to have to be more investment and he's going to have to, as majority shareholder, is going to have to help facilitate that investment. So I do think that alongside being fair about the good aspects of, of an owner's time at a club, you do have to scrutinise what else they're doing and you do have to keep an eye on everything to basically to, to hold them to account. Mm-hmm. And I always say we didn't do enough of that with somebody like Ken Bates. I think we did more than enough of it with GFH. We did more than enough of it with Chilino, I, I think we've been pretty balanced with Radrazani, and I do think Radrazani has done some some very good things. I mean, compare you know the stadium and the commercial commercial side of things, even the development of the training ground, and I know Bielsa has pushed a lot of that. But there has been investment, and there have been things that have kind of dragged Leeds into the into the twenty first century. But you should always keep an eye on it, and that will apply if the 49ers become owners. It would apply if Peter Lowy becomes owner or becomes more heavily invested, because it has to. Why do you think it was then that? Perhaps there wasn't the same holding to account of, of Ken Bates back then. Uh, from my point of view, I, I think I was too ex- uh, too inexperienced as as a journalist. I mean, it was funny, I was speaking to somebody about Derby County and, and trying to cover them at the moment. They're in a similar position to Leeds in that they are in administration. It's a complete mess. You know, nobody knows where it's going. My first full season at Evening Post was when they, they got relegated from the championship. Second full season... It was the season after they'd gone into administration. And that summer was totally, totally logjammed by a process that very few of us in the media knew much about, you know, the um, insolvency and everything else. I was kind of learning learning on the job with that. I think I could have been braver with them. I think the paper could definitely have been braver with them in that period. But as I always say, that's not to say that there weren't periods where we did take him on, particularly that admin summer. And I was banned twice by the club during that period. But you do... You do need to scrutinise because the, the reality is that very few owners who come into clubs are actually supporters of the club and they will always talk about prestige and the reputation and the history and everything else. But you've very little idea about how much they knew of that before they started trying to buy the club. And you often suspect that the answer is very little. I mean, for example, I don't think it would have had much credibility if Radrazani had walked in and started talking about, you know, the Don Riviera and, and all this, that and the other. You, it's almost better to just say, look, I wasn't around for any of that. I don't necessarily know a huge amount about it, but I like what this club is and, and I want to want to get involved. And in fairness to the Saudis, I don't think there's been too much of that up at Newcastle. I don't think they're I don't think that they're going on too much about Keegan and Shearer and, and all of that. It's a kind of different takeover that because you have this political aspect to it and the, the human rights strand which a lot of people are unhappy about. I think you're ignoring David Haig and his his lifelong affinity with the club well, uh, well, when he took over. But great example, though, because what happens when you try and do that? People look and see whether it's actually true. Mm. And if it isn't, or if it doesn't appear to be true, then they ask questions. Yeah, and, you, and can't, straight, you can't insult the intelligence of your audience, can no, you? No, straight, straight away, you're on the back foot because people start to think, well, why are you making that up? You know, why why not just be honest about the fact that, no, I'm not, you know, I don't support this club, or, you know, but I, I want to do good things for it. And ultimately, as a, to go back to the, the argument about money, I'm sure at Manchester United, if the Glazers go, they would love to think that they will get somebody there who has Manchester United at heart. But given the tiny, tiny 
proportion of people, states, whatever, who, who would be able to buy that club. It's quite a big ask. You are talking about basically Qatar's the only one left outside the Premier League now, aren't you? I mean, and let's not pretend, said this over on our show, if they walked in and said, right, we've got the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Qatar behind us and we're buying Leeds United, it would be met with overwhelming joy. So there is that to say. And I know that we'd all probably have to then go through the moralistic dance of saying, okay, well, I'm going to separate out my football team from the, the, the workers dying, building the stadiums for the World Cup because I can't affect that. And we'd, we'd do that whole same dance that the Newcastle fans have done. Although some of them were actually physically dancing, dressed in Arab headgear and robes and stuff like that. And that there's a difference between, I guess, working it out and putting on a show like that. I just, I don't know where, quite where I sit on this one. I think the difficulty comes as well is that when you see what the money can do both for the, for the football club in terms of results immediately on the pitch, but then if you look at Man City, all the investment they've put into the area and how they've built the academy. I mean, Man, Man City's academy is ridiculous. If you, if you can see the aerial view of it, it's like a, it's own it's his own little town and it's a it is a brilliant thing to have in a city it undoubtedly is but it's trying to well that's what sports washing is exactly isn't it? it's yeah. trying it's trying to separate even the good community stuff being done here you think well what about what about other communities what well, are you what well, are you doing what are you doing back well this is the thing how many how many migrant workers died building manchester city's new training village were, were, the, were the standards of working slightly better here than they were over there and and can we draw equivalence between them but you can understand can't you why why as a Newcastle fan, you would feel a bit victimised over this. The alternative to this is to be stuck with Mike Ashley. So you've got rid of Ashley, you've got owners who suddenly have a lot of money and you've got all this criticism coming at you. And the natural reaction is to is to be resistant to that. Because people, um, want, and, to defend, people want to defend the institution, don't you? Which is what actually brings us back to, I guess, the problem you face when you're the local media in that you've got to keep a strong relationship with the football club and your audience that you're speaking to are the people who really want to believe in the institution. So you've got to be careful not to criticise the institution too much. But, but there are there are times where you have to be prepared to lose that relationship with the club as well. There are times, uh, you know, as as was the case latterly with, um, with GFH, where there's just no value in having a relationship with them because you can see what's going on and you can see how it's all falling apart. And, and that's plainly apparent to, to everybody. But there are some people who will resent the fact that Newcastle are, are under attack like this. There are some people who will just be making excuse, you know, any excuse to say this is good. People shouldn't be criticising us. We've we've got lots of money. I do understand that viewpoint, and I, I understand why it is difficult to suddenly have this what will be perceived as great news for them, and for people to be be raining on the, that particular parade. Just don't try and justify it by banging on about Disney and iPhones and everything else. People do not support Disney. People do not support iPhones. They pay for them but they don't support them. And more to the point, PIF don't invest in Disney and iPhones in order for the reputation to rise. They, they do it to make money. But when you're buying a football club and it comes back to that, that term sports washing, it is a way of improving the reputation of a country that, that has a lot of issues. Yeah, that's the point exactly you made, wasn't it, Michael? Like it's, it's a completely different relationship whether you like it or not. Yeah, there's, there's no point trying to draw any, any equivalence between them. And Disney don't have, well, Disney do have fans, I suppose, but they're not, they're not, uh, they're not Disney, going the Disney ultras. They're not going week in, week out, are they? They're not, they're not having to, uh, you know, you've not got each other with an iPhone. You've not got Moana away on a, a Tuesday night or anything, have you? It's, it is a different thing. I think the best hope for this ending badly is them appointing Frat Lampard, which would, which would be, I think, a, a nice way of them to get through their first billion pounds. I well, that actually, that is exactly what Rajazani did say. And it was a line that I know will probably be jumped on by Leeds fans and they'll go, oh, well, that's just excusing not spending. But he did say, 
money is not always equal to success this morning on the interview with Sky News. It helps a lot, but it's true, ultimately, that there's there's a kernel of truth there. You do need some strategy behind it. You need yeah. the right people. And that is that is one of the things that he did really well at Leeds was, I think, between Otter and Kinnear and, and Bielsa, really, really strong management team. I mean, I don't know, maybe this is a good opportunity or a good time for everybody to kind of reflect on how real these last three years have been at Leeds, even for allowing for the absence of crowds. You know, when it comes to pure football, that's that's what that's what we've had in, in these three years. But to, to ask you a question, if QSI were to buy in tomorrow, and as I say, I think that boat's sailed because it feels like it, it's felt for a long time now like it would be heading to the, the 49ers from Radrazani if it was heading anywhere. But as supporters, what, if, if they were promising to spend massive amounts of money, what, what would your reaction be? Uh, I was like, oh, we're one of those clubs now, are we? You I think- don't know. What about if they dangled the pole? Not anymore. That <laughs> ship has sailed, as we were saying, Phil. No, but I mean, seriously, like I, I look at Manchester City as an example, and I know they don't have the same reach as, I don't think they've got the same reach as Leeds, but then you look at other clubs that are, you know have proper worldwide appeal and their struggles to fill their ground. Maybe they've got too many fixtures these days. I don't know, because they're in so many competitions. But I don't know. Do they strike you as a happy fan base? I don't know. I can't really tell. Maybe, maybe, or maybe I'm just excusing that from my position here as a Leeds fan, where we haven't won anything for ages. There's a bit of a narrative around them that they're a, a kind of detached or a bit bold of it, and so on. I don't know if that's true. I no. have to be honest. I don't know a lot of Man City fans, and I'd be surprised. They, they must be loving the the football that they they get over there. When it comes to fans' perspective, I'm I'm kind of bad person to talk to about this because I, you know, I'm used to like Scottish football being a closed shop, and it has been for. I mean, I'm forty now. I, I would say. At least 25 years. You don't look a day over 39. So. No, I definitely don't. And probably a little bit longer mm. as well. So I'm, I'm kind of used to that and I guess a bit conditioned to it. It's not a good thing, but you sort of learn to exist within that remit and to enjoy your club and, and your football regardless. But A little bit like Leeds in League One, I guess. The Hearts ownership, very straightforward as well over the years, of course. <laughs> well, well, this is it. And you see, even though... I mean, I haven't looked at Vladimir Romanov's story recently, but I, the- I do you know I was just on his Wikipedia. He was on um, he was on Strictly Come Dancing, and he was accused of vote rigging. <laughs> well, I was just reading the, the last time I read as well. It was suggesting, and this might be wrong. So, for legal reasons, I'll say I don't know if this is strictly true. But he was hiding out in Russia because the the Lithuanian authorities were after him. But of course, when he arrives and he start, he gets George Burley and he signs Rudy Skatchel and loads of quality players by our standards. And you're at the top of the league until he sacks Bully after you know three months and it all falls apart or all goes wrong. There is that part of you thinking, I don't really care who he is and I don't really care what he's done. This is absolutely great. Football's football's terrific and you do need to check yourself every now and again. But that is a very natural instinct in football. To go back to the start of this, I just feel now that if you are going to compete in the Premier League, unless football, the landscape of football is about to change massively, which I don't think it is, then how else do you do it apart from via takeovers like this? How else is it done? To go back to the question about how we'd feel if if we had had the same situation, I feel like at the very least what you can do is continue to object to the things that are going on in Saudi Arabia, whereas it feels like, admittedly, Twitter's not a representative example of the fans necessarily, but it feels like an awful lot of Newcastle fans have just gone straight onto the whataboutery and trying to excuse absolutely everything, everything that the regime has done, whereas actually you can... I feel like there is a bit of middle ground where you can go, do you know what, there are massive, massive problems here. But equally, if we don't have to watch that dreadful side every week, <laughs> that is also something we can enjoy. Not seeing Jeff Hendrick would be a pleasure. 
I think that's fair. And you're also in a country that has had a really, really strong relationship with Saudi Arabia for a lot of years now and does a lot of trade with them. And, well, it's hard for me to say, but the perception isn't that a lot of pressure is put on Saudi Arabia over these issues by the UK government, this one or, or previous ones. So in that sense, you can imagine people sitting in Newcastle saying, well, why is this our responsibility to do this? But I think you're right. I think if you can strike the balance by in saying there are aspects of this I do not like, but do you know what? From a footballing perspective, this could be really good for us. Then I feel like almost as a, a football supporter, that's as much as you can do. I, I don't really like the idea that people should start boycotting or stop going because it's their club. The big question that I guess we should finish on is where is football heading? If this is another step down a road, where does this road lead to? It seems to me that if you end up with a small cabal of clubs with massively wealthy owners, you're going to create leagues within leagues, i.e. different divisions within the Premier League. And to a certain extent, we're already already there, with certainly with your top top little group. Below that, it can be much of a muchness. But what, what, what if there are 10 billionaires, Phil, then? Well, there almost need to be 10 or 20 billionaires in order for it to be a level playing field. That's how ridiculous it's become. And if you don't get to that stage, then as much as there was all the fighting over the European Super League, I don't see ideas like that going away. I don't see them not resurfacing further down the line because you will probably have to create a competition whereby there is some competitive edge in it. And I know there's competitive edge between your clubs who are right at the very top of it, but everybody else feels so distant. And I think even more distant than last season, it does seem as if there's been another leap and Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United have, have moved on that little bit more. And, and to go back to a common theme on this podcast, I think with a different head coach, Manchester United would be further ahead of everybody other than, you know, within the top four. I think they would be further ahead of the pack below than they are already. Southampton at the weekend. Then Phil, first question is, are you heading down there? Yes, I will be going. Early train down, late train back. Not quite a 24-hour job, but it will be close to covering it all. Well, you've seen the family over the international break now. That's, yes. That's it for another month. Yeah, don't expect to see me till February. Yeah, usual service. Uh, you're going to make it. What about Rafinha then? He's going to be jetted in, isn't he? According to the story, the reports uh, in the last couple of days, there's a private jet being hired by a load of clubs. He has a chance, but Bielsa was saying today that most of his recovery time is going to be spent flying, which is not great for recovery. It will depend. He's, he's due to start against um, Uruguay. That game may already be have been played by the time people are listening uh, he said he'd look at how many minutes uh, he got in that game. Any news on the injuries picked up? <laughs> Michael. <laughs> come on, come on. Um, although, if that happens, we will um, beat Michael to death for game style <laughs> next week. Yeah, so he was sounding cautious to me, Bielsa. Rafinha being Rafinha, he's such a machine that you could see him just turning up and scoring eight goals in the way that he does. But I think Bielsa's view on this is that if he is fatigued and if he's not right and if there's a risk of injury, which there genuinely might be in this case because of how little turnaround time he's had. Deep vein thrombosis from flying. It it does make no sense. So it'd be quite a story if he does turn out. I saw Fabinho saying earlier that he doesn't think there's any chance of him and Alisson playing for Liverpool against Watford, but that is an earlier kickoff. That that is a leeway of a couple of hours with, um, with Rafinha. But we're going to find out Saturday, aren't we? I've got a feeling he'll play him and then take him off, maybe. I've maybe. got a sneaky feeling he'll yeah. play as well. I, I, think he, I think he just might. Based on nothing at all. Uh, the other big question about Southampton is, um, will Che Adams make it? And as a result of that, will we see the two strikers? They tend to favour two up front. No, he won't. Um, Hassan Huttle has already said that he's got a thigh strain and will miss out this weekend. And likewise, while Price doesn't play, obviously not striker, but um, he, he was sent off before the international break. 
so is suspended. They do tend to play two up front, which obviously has implications for Bielsa's system. I think it's probably likely that Hassan Huttle will try and keep that in, intact despite losing Shea Adams, but there is the potential for that to, to move around. Because we always look slightly weaker, I think, when we're doing the 3-3-1-3 uh, three, three, three dance. I definitely feel that. And whenever I see that it's 3-3-1-3, three, 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 I never feel as confident about it. And I suppose if you're being fair to the players, the percentage of games where they've played 4-1-4-1 four, one, four, one versus the percentage of games where they've been set up specifically 3-3-1-3, three, 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 it's much heavily weighted towards one rather than, than the other. And I know the formation is very fluid in the games and I know it does kind of switch to three at the back quite a lot when, when Phillips drops in. But I think as a set formation from the get-go, I, I'm definitely keen on 4-1-4-1. Four, one, four, one. Who are you playing on the left? I think after Watford, I'd be very tempted to stick with Dan James. I thought his pressing was terrific. I thought you could see the the impact of it. And I do feel like you can you can feel a bit of impetus starting to build with him. Um, you can feel the game coming through. Basically, it's, it seems that Bielsa has got a good choice there. Harrison or James, I wouldn't have a problem with either of them. I think they're, they're quite similar. James is clearly quicker, but um, only because he is so lightning quick. Harrison is, is not slow by any means. And they are both pretty... Pretty good physically, um, they're both good at, at tracking back. But I think, given the result against Watford, it would seem to me more likely that that James is is going to be is going to be the one that gets the nod. Is Dan James a bit of a problem for Jack Harrison? You think? Well, it's direct competition, definitely, and probably. Well, I wouldn't say the first time that um, he's had competition there because obviously the cost that did come in and was expensive. There has always been kind of at least three options to choose from out wide. But yeah, I mean, the, the pressure's on there and it, it's on there particularly because Rafinha just picks himself at the moment. There would never be a question if Rafinha's fit and in this form about whether or not he starts on the right. So it does then become a toss-up between Harrison and Dan James. One £11 million signing, one £25 million signing, but both players who, who Bielsa rates very, very highly. I think as an established team, Bielsa would probably have it in his head that, that Harrison plays there, but it does feel like straight away... And this is what you want to see from signings. It does feel like straight away Dan James has started chipping away there. And he likes his inverted wingers, doesn't he? So having Dan James on the left as a right footer and then Rafinha vice versa, it's nice and balanced. Yeah, and Rafinha, Rafinha causes a lot of havoc actually doing that, cutting in. I, when, when I was looking at the, the West Ham game in particular, the, the interplay between him and Rodrigo when it was good was very good. Um, they seemed to understand where they should be moving. There was a, a lot of interaction between them and Rafinha was was clever at coming inside as Rodrigo tried to drag players out wide. James will, will do much the same. Harrison is far more a player who hugs hugs the touchline. But looking at Firpo, he has seemed to me so far to be a fullback who almost prefers to underlap rather than, than overlap. And potentially in that system, Harrison might, might suit him a little bit better. But as I say, I think that's a good choice to have on that side. If you've got somebody as nailed down as, as Rafinha on the right, brilliant. On the other side, it's, it's terrific to have some, some options. We on the Square Ball podcast, we felt a sort of a very, a very low key confidence going into this one, just building off the back of that that Watford result. Is that confidence shared by the management and the players? They they seem unwavering in in where they are at the minute. I didn't think they were lacking in confidence at all before the Watford game. It was what I was saying. Bielsa was very honest at kind of laying out the the bad aspects of what had happened, you know, league position and the results and the the points total, but kept trying to say to us, you do have to balance that against what you're seeing with your eyes and, and the decent parts that, that are coming out of the games. And I don't feel as if they've had one good game. I don't feel it's as if they've they've got a win and now you're looking for them to build on it. I felt as if it was kind of there to be had against West Ham and it, and it went wrong in the second half. I still think they played 
pretty well against Everton over 90 minutes in parts better than, than pretty well. So it has kind of been there. It's just been waiting to bubble up to the surface and, and come through. I think this is a very winnable game. I think Ward-Prowse and, and Adams being out is a problem for them. It, it seems to me that, that it does weaken them. Not an easy game. I saw some quotes from Hassan, Hassan Hull earlier saying something on the lines of it's not going to be a five-course banquet, this one. And it, it could be a, a fair old battle, but um, game leads could win. Did you see that scurrilous internet rumour apparently inside the Southampton dressing room this week suggesting that they believe, the players believe, it's only a matter of time before Hassan Hull is sacked? It hasn't been going well for them. And that goes back to last season also. There, there was a period where... I think he himself thought that he should be in the mix when it came to discussions about various big coaching jobs that were coming up. And he had been doing well at Southampton. And, it, you know, you were getting this vibe from him that if there were coaches to be considered for higher and potentially bigger roles, then he should be one of them. I do think they've regressed pretty badly since then. They, they didn't look like going down last season, but they did look like drifting, drifting, drifting more and more into the, the bottom half. And I wouldn't say they've especially turned the corner at the moment. I can't honestly tell you how it is for him down there, but he's not in, he's not in a position of strength, is he? Because the results have not been good for a little while. No, you feel that they are in more danger this season, and I say that fully aware of our own league position. I mean, they have they have noticeably weakened, though, haven't they, over the summer? I mean, as much as we've talked at length about the fact we maybe wanted a central midfielder, you know, they have lost key members of their team from last season, and with James Ward-Prowse out in this game and Che Adams, it does it does all seem to be in our favour. Yeah. Ings, <laughs> Ings was such a good player for them and is such a good player and I know Villa had the Grealish money so that must have been very difficult to fend off but there didn't seem to be a lot of resistance to that that happened pretty quickly after the Grealish deal went through and, and he I know his contract was in a position that kind of compromised Southampton as well but it wasn't like a massive exodus it just felt as if the best of the players with the exception of Ward Price who did take a, a new new contract it felt a little bit as if the best of the players were starting to think to themselves, do you know what, the greener grass at other clubs. So I, I think they've regressed, definitely, I, I do. But Leeds aren't in a good enough position yet to start throwing stones about that. No, but then again, this one is there to be won, isn't it? And if we do have any, any even moderate ambitions this season, you've got to win this. Shall I run us through the team news so you have a bit of a clearer... A view of what's going on. No, I on. prefer swinging wildly in the dark. Well, I was, I was just going to say one thing before you do. I'm, I'm actually keen to keep even just half an eye on uh, Romain Perot. Has he made any impact down there? I haven't heard much said about him. You referred to him because obviously Leeds took a good look at him before signing signing Furport. Genuine answer? I don't know how it's gone. Um, I don't know whether he's been impressive. There was a fair amount of money paid for him, and that actually was a was a pretty good signing. But I don't think it's really there that they're they're lacking. Um, and I always felt that losing Ings would be. I mean, Ings is the sort of player who. A bit like Callum Wilson at Newcastle, if he's fit and he's playing, he's always going to come up with goals for you and will probably always keep you keep you clear of, of trouble if he, he gets on enough of a enough of a hot streak. But I certainly haven't seen enough of Perod to know for sure if if he was a better option than Firpo or or vice versa. But again, Leeds seem very happy with Firpo. Time will tell. And yeah, and Phil is trying to break the team news to us because he has just moments ago stepped out of the press conference uh, via Zoom with Bielsa. So we've been sat in the room working very hard as we always do. Phil. Yes. In your yeah. absence, we break off between parts two and three to let you go into the press That's conference. Right. So, you, were, you were talking work actually when I came back in, which was yeah. a surprise. So we um, we don't know 100% exactly what's happened. Although we've seen the news like Cox gone for um, an operation in America and Forshaw back in the mix. Forshaw is available. So we'll be in the squad. I think Koch, yes, he's he's in the States. He's having a what Bielsa said was a simple operation, which sounds it's uh, a, it's a, <laughs> it's a different injury to ailings, but that is the same as what was said about ailing. You know, a clean out job more than anything 
it's the rebellious pubis, so pelvic problem. And it's one of those where, again, I think to begin with, the expectation was that, you know, a few weeks out, a bit of rest, a bit of, you know, rehab, this will sort itself. It hasn't sorted itself. It's gone on a little bit longer than everybody wanted it to. And I think they're now at, at that stage that really, that happens really regularly with injured players where you decide, do you know what? We could end up dragging this on for ages. So let's just bite the bullet and, and try and nip it in the bud. So there's no Robin Koch this weekend. Luke Ayling is getting there, but but won't be fit. And Patrick Bamford also out. I heard on the, the official League United podcast him saying earlier that he, he felt like it was going quite slowly, his recovery in terms of this weekend. So he won't won't be there. Somerville was obviously ill for the Watford game. He is available and Phillips Phillips has a chance. A chance. Says, I, yes. hope, I hope that's a 100% chance. That would make me comfortable. When Phillips is kind of... 50-50 or, you know, in the balance, he tends to come through in mm. these circumstances. He's he's very, very robust guy. So let's hope. Well, with the absence of, of Ailing, it opens the door for Shackleton. And with the absence of Bamford, we see Rodrigo up front. And I've enjoyed seeing how those two get on because sometimes just having that little change, that little, you know, mix of it up of the team that's playing can help alleviate a little bit of the stress of, you know, when it's not quite working yeah. and everyone's kind of crying out for change and we should have done this and this should be happening and then, to see it actually forced upon us actually sometimes does help to just to lift some of that pressure. It's not so dissimilar to Bamford in the England team. You know, one game against Andorra in a sort of bit, bit part. Um, and his injury, and his injury and, means they've had to put that yeah. loser came back in. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously he's, he's been nowhere near the squad this time round because he, he hasn't been fit. But one game is a really short window to do anything in. And the same goes for Rodrigo. Getting one game up front while Bamford is missing doesn't give him a right lot of opportunity to shine, particularly given that Leeds haven't been in, in top form. But a run of games, you would like to think that that is what will bring it out of him. Um, and I think he's been good. I'd like, to see, I'd like to see a goal from him in this game. Yeah. Just, just to sort of underline his credentials. I mean, we don't, you know, he's, he's a very good footballer, quite evidently, and we paid a lot of money for him. It feels like if he gets the goal, it'll allow him just to, you know, build his confidence even further, maybe. Does Bamford get back in if he scores? That's well, the I'd, thing. I'd like there to be a question over that, at the very least. That's the point, I guess. I don't want I don't want Bamford to be able to come back in as the automatic first choice because it means that Rodrigo is then succeeding if that's the case. I think that's a, I think that's a good point. And Bielsa was asked about the goal scored this season because he hasn't been flowing quite so clearly. Um, and he, he was saying it's not it's not down to Bamford that um, at all. But he did say, I would like us to be more creative. I would like us to be more efficient, i.e. finish better than than we have been. I think he would, he would like to see Leeds a little bit more cutthroat up front in in the way that, that they can be. Yeah, that has to be the aim for Rodrigo here, to kind of understand that Bamford is the established number nine, but to say to yourself, if I am going to have a run of games, then there is the potential for me to play well enough to push myself forward. And, and this fixture last season away at St Mary's fell in that little run of games where Rodrigo suddenly came into form and was getting some time up front and was scoring goals. And I think that'll be really good for him. I think everybody at Leeds feels like it's, kind of almost there, it's almost coming, it's just waiting to bust out and, and explode and goals would help. Will there be a little shuffling of the pack then if it is to be three at the back? Do you think maybe, I don't know, Shackleton, does he miss out maybe and they push Dallas onto the right hand side of midfield, click in the middle, I'm not quite sure how it all unfolds. Well, there's decisions to make there. You've obviously got Strike who could come in and, and form a back three with Llorente and Cooper. Somebody would have to make way and yeah, potentially that, that would be Shackleton. Although, I'd be disappointed for Shackleton if that was the case. We ran a piece on The Athletic this week about who at your club should be getting more minutes. And I was really tempted to put Gilhart because everybody wants to see Gilhart and you'd like him to, you know, you'd like him to get a bit of a, a bit of a go. But I honestly think most of Bielsa's first team players get a good share of minutes. He has a small squad, so everybody from time to time is getting a game and, and there aren't that many 
who are pushed out. But Shackleton, I think, is is a guy who's got such a he's such a good runner. He, he's so physically fit, really, really good stamina on him, and and you know he he can pick a pass. He's he's got good touch. He's he's a skillful, gifted footballer. I do feel like he's the one in that pack who you really would like to see play a bit more. And I think his performances in the last couple of games, especially against Watford, would justify him keeping his place. A quick word then on, on Lewis Bate as well, who ran the show for the England under-20s. Uh, was it against Italy when yes. he played at, at Chesterfield? Hugely positive reports from everybody who saw him there, said he was the best player on the park, head and shoulders above above the rest of them. Do you think he's relatively close to the first team? Because when, when we spoke to Angus Kinnear, uh, before the season started, he, w- he was saying that maybe he's a little bit further forward in his development in terms of the under-23s recruitment. And when I say you know further on in his development, I mean making the steps from the 23s into the first team, which they identified as sort of a two-year process. Do you reckon he's, what, a year out, six months out this season? When? Maybe a year, yeah. Um, but he also went to watch him at Chesterfield, actually, and he was mentioned in dispatches, so he, so he was very good. And Bielsa was talking about him being able to thread thread a needle with his passing and I think that's been quite apparent in the 23s fixtures as well. It just seems to be that when it comes to loading up the bench, there are other 23s who Bielsa is looking to. And the interesting thing is, and obviously like they, he can't really apply this because Leeds are short in midfield, you know, they don't have endless numbers of bodies there. But Bielsa doesn't pick on the basis of who the best 23s are purely. It's more to do with having right cover in the right positions across the bench. So he always talks about wanting two people who could play up front, two who could play midfield, two who could play defensively, having a good spread. There's a kind of tactical thought to it. But Bate must be pretty close in the in the grand scheme. I mean, one, one of the interesting things in the Creswell interview that I've done, I sort of said to him, there's always this clamour for 23s to get a game. Everybody always wants 23s to be involved. And it's a, a bit of a problem at the moment that there are so many good 23s that everybody has a different view on who should be getting a go. And if you were giving a go to every single 23 that everybody was trying to tout, you'd be changing the team every week and you'd be bombing out first teamers all over the place. It just can't be done. And Creswell did say, well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's Leeds United's first team, isn't it? So there's no way in which we're all just going to jump into it. And there's no way in which any of us expect to jump into it. And he was sort of chatting about them all being very patient up there which I get the feeling that they are I don't think the desperation that's the right word but you know the the kind of appetite for 23's debuts on the outside I don't think it's quite the same on the inside in that it isn't eating them all up I think they know that they're doing well they know that they're in the mix they know that they're you know, benefiting from Bielsa's coaching I think they're all really happy That, that tends to come from a, a position though of desperation I do think it is I think it's when the anxiety kind of creeps in around it going wrong for the first team. And if you think we're losing it, you know, marginally in midfield, suddenly the answer is, well, we can't bring on Tyler Roberts. We must have something better in the in the 23s because, well, it's not the existing one. It's like Mike Ashley, isn't it? When it comes to buying, uh, coming in and buying football clubs. But it's not him. It's somebody else. To an extent, though, you do have to trust the man who's taking you up and, you know, has won more games than he's lost and, and has generally been a, a revelation since he's come in. It's been a small period, this, in which it hasn't gone particularly well. It's fine picking out the best 23s and, and saying they could make a difference. But I don't think, with maybe a few exceptions, I don't think much has ever been solved by just suddenly saying, play the kids. Mm. It's not it's not really the answer to anything. The answer is to blood them properly, do it sensibly. For a coach who knows what he's doing, to see what's in front of his eyes. And it wasn't the wrong decision to take Creswell out against Watford, was it? Because Urente had a very good game. Leeds were really solid defensively. I'd like to see Creswell play just because of how well he'd done at West Ham, but I do totally understand that decision. And you've got to be sober and, and rational about it because, as I say, 
the number of 23s that people want to see, if you were going to, if you were going to satisfy everybody, it would have to be like... It'd a, be the 23s, all of them, 1 to 11, well, it, wouldn't it? It would, it would <laughs> be. And then they'd get absolutely annihilated by Manchester City and people would say, well, that was ludicrous, wasn't it? You know, it would just so, be like... Uh, It'd be like a never-ending roundabout on which people were getting on and off. Lewis Bates to start on Saturday then. Absolutely I, nailed on. I, he is he is one of those that you would like to see a little bit more of, again, just because such good things are being said of him. But the whole purpose of signing him was not to, you know, throw him into 38 games this season. He's, you know, he's a teenager. He's got years to go. Make him good. Make him as good as he can be. Benefit from that when the time's right. Well, we predicted with quiet confidence, Michael, victories at... St. Mary's. Wasn't that quiet? One of you predicted 4-0. I can't that, remember who that was. That wasn't me. Okay, I think I said 1-0. I think that might have been Moscow. So you said 1-0. I'm happy to go along with a, a low-scoring win, like a 1-2-0, or I think. Yeah, I can see 2-1. I think it will be tight. I think, like Hassan Huttle said, there's there's not going to be very much in it, and it could be quite scrappy yeah. um, in parts. But I think Leeds have got it in them to do this. It has been quite accurate, your prediction, you're predicting this season. That, that's not based on any sort of... I've not kept an, an accurate tally of this. I'm just sort of the general vibe is that you've been more or less spot on, whereas my optimism has been punished. Yes, it has been quite brutally, but I've, I've got a, a decent enough feeling about this game. I mean, again, like Watford, sort of game they've got to be winning. Fingers crossed. If you want to subscribe to The Athletic and read the uh, the Cresswell thing that Phil has written, is it written? Is it in the can? It is. It's already done. Afternoon off for me. Oh, very nice. It's at The Athletic. And if you want to sign up, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod, 33% off the price of a full sub. And we will catch you next week. The Phil Hay Show. 